0: Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Chris takes us into our holiday season series, The Songs of Christmas. We'll be taking a look at the familiar Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Chris.
1: If we have not met before, my name is Chris Thompson. I am the uh, students' pastor here at South Harbor. So it's been a privilege to do that, coming up on a year now. I uh, just realized this like I was in the midst of transitioning from Chicago up here last year, and it was a crazy time of year. And so. Advent for me was less than restful, uh, but knowing that we'd get to be a part of a great community was uh, something really fun and spectacular that we were really looking forward to. So, if this is your first time here, uh, glad you are with us. I uh, would love to meet you and talk with you afterwards. So I'll be hanging out in the lobby afterwards. You can come and find me. If you are a student, we'd love to talk with you as well, let you know what we're doing here and why that matters to your life and how that can uh, make a meaningful impact in your life. Um, And if you're somebody who's interested, uh, shameless plug, if you're somebody who's interested in serving in student ministries, uh, we would love to talk with you as well, because we've got a growing ministry where we just need more adults who want to speak into students' lives. And so we would love to get to know you and see how you might be able uh, to plug into the ministries that we've got going uh, on here. So I hope that you all had a fantastic Thanksgiving uh, and are enjoying the last remnants of fall. I know some of you are traveling in from out of town, which is great. So we're glad that you're here with all of your family. College students, we're glad you're here as well as Tim mentioned. Uh, We are entering into one of my favorite times of year. It's the time where I get to blast the little drummer boy on repeat all the time. Uh, It is my favorite Christmas song. I remember when I was a child, uh, my dad had like this VHS player. My dad's a drummer, so like what Craig was doing up here this morning, that's like what my dad does all the time. Uh, and so my dad's favorite Christmas song of all time was The Little Drummer Boy. And I remember like the old Claymation video, if you've ever seen it before. Yeah, I see some nods. Like it's uh, its one of the greatest stories that's not in the Bible that's ever been told about Jesus. Uh, so it's pretty great. This kid uh, following, he's got like this whole like just it's weird. He like drums, and it's like he just has all these animals like follow him to go and find Jesus. It's this really cool story. Uh, so it's just it's my favorite type of year uh, because I get to listen to uh, the little drummer boy. I get to introduce my kids to the little drummer boy. Like I get to go and cut down a tree. I was one of those yesterday that was out at Bosch's family tree farm out in Allendale cutting down a tree and eating the popcorn balls out there. It was so much fun. Um, and while I love all of those things, is I love that. Type of thing, and I love Christmas music for the three weeks we only should ever listen to Christmas music for. Uh, Some of you have been listening to it since October 31. Y'all are wild. Um, But I'm really glad about this season because I love the season of Advent. Uh, It's this season where we get to anticipate one of the greatest stories that's ever been told. We have Christmas and Easter, two of the greatest stories that have ever been told about who Jesus is and why Jesus matters in our lives. And so for those of you that may have been in the church for a while, you may have heard the word Advent and never really understood what it means. For those of you who are new to church or this is your first time, Advent is a word that comes from a Latin root, and I'm gonna say it confidently because you'll believe me uh, That is how it's said, uh, advenire, that sounds right, uh, it comes from two words, uh, ad in Latin means to, and "venire" means come. And so it's a season of anticipation where we're waiting for what's to come. It's, a, it's the excitement, the anticipation of Jesus' birth, right? We celebrate this for five weeks, this Advent season leading up to what is to come, Jesus' birth, And so I'm really excited about this series because uh, every year we get to Advent, it's kind of like, okay, what sermons are we gonna recycle? Like, we've all heard this story. How are we gonna gonna do something fun with the Advent season this year? And so what we've decided to do here at Harbor Churches uh, and at South Harbor is we're gonna take a look at some of like the really fun Christmas carols that we've all come to love over the years. And we're gonna look at them and we're gonna talk about the words that are in them. And we're gonna talk more specifically about the characters that we find in each of these stories and why they're so important to the overall Advent season. And so this morning, we're gonna talk about Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, Next week, we'll talk about O Come All Ye Faithful, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Joy to the World, and Away in a Manger, all throughout these series. And these songs have specific people that we're going to talk about. And before I reveal to you who we're gonna talk about from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I have a question for all of you to set the stage for the morning. When you think about the world's dirtiest job, one that absolutely grosses you out, what would it be and why? So just take a minute to like talk to somebody next to you, Uh, talk to your partner and just say, hey, what is the world's dirtiest job to you and why? And then I have a really fun list of really dirty jobs to talk about. So take like 15, 20 seconds, just share what you think the most disgusting job. It could be a fake job that you're just making up because you think something is so gross. I was talking with students today, I can't stand tapioca pudding, so that would be a gross job. Making tapioca pudding, gross. And now you've learned something fun about the person sitting next to you about what absolutely disgusts them in life. So that's fun. All right, you could probably keep talking about this all day. I'm gonna reel you back in. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, uh, there was a show hosted by this guy. Anybody know who this guy is? Man, you guys, so many people know who Mike Rowe is. That's great. I love it. Uh, Mike Rowe hosted a, hosted a show. Actually, he actually hosted a podcast. I plugged this in the first service, so he's probably going to spike through the roof. It's called, the, sh- the podcast is, uh, that's the way I heard it. It's basically like him telling these five-minute stories of like really famous people, but he doesn't tell you who the person is until the end. So he just like tells you all these really fun facts of who this person is and the story of their life, and then he reveals to the person, and then the end of the episode is like... Or at least that's the way I heard it. And then he just like stops talking. It's a great show. Or it's a great podcast. You should listen to it. Um, But he hosted a show back in the early mid-2000s called Dirtiest Jobs. Was anybody hooked on this show? Like just watching the really gross things that people did? Uh, (laughs) So I did a little bit of a deep dive because I was curious. I watched a bunch of this show, but I didn't watch all of it. Uh, They did 10 seasons of this show, which is crazy. There's a lot of apparently really gross jobs out there. Uh, But I went through all of the lists of the 10 seasons, and I just pulled out a couple of titles for you of just episodes of jobs that people had Uh, or ones that you didn't know existed. So uh, so season 10, episode 13, Deer Urine Farmer. Sounds great. Uh, Season 10, episode two, Feral Cat Fixer. Bob Barker would be very happy that that's a job. Uh, Season five, episode 20, Worm Grunting. This is a crazy job. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I saw it on the list and I was like, I have to look up a video of what this is. So apparently, this is crazy. You should look up the video afterwards. It's like two guys from Appalachia who do this job. So they take this like two-foot like piece of wood, it's maybe this, you know, two feet long, maybe I don't know, this big around, and they like shove it in the ground about a foot. Then they have a big, like 10-pound piece of iron, and they just rub this iron on the top of this piece of wood. And apparently, it vibrates the ground and imitates as if like a mole was digging through the ground and apparently worms like escape to the surface to like get away from moles and then they literally just walk around with their buckets and just like scoop up worms it's like a weird voodoo thing that they do with these worms and then they just go and sell them as like bait for fishermen they make like 25 bucks a a a bucket it's wild you have to go and see the video it's crazy um Then you have season three, episode two, or season four, episode 27, Maggot Farmer, pretty self-explanatory. Poo pot maker, that is not somebody who makes toilets, that is somebody who takes like cow manure and makes, you know, pots out of them for you to store stuff. Uh, Season one, episode nine, Sludge Cleaner, cleaner, that episode I remember seeing, they climb into like really tight spaces and like squeegee slime out of, it's really disgusting. this is a list of six jobs, of over like 100 to 200 jobs that Mike Rowe went and looked at and tested out and did for himself. There were these crazy jobs. But the crazy part of the show uh, was that in a world of dirty jobs, we wanted to know more about each of these jobs, right? Like Now that I've showed you this title, you probably really want to go and watch, like, what in the world do they do in these jobs? You might be grossed out, but you're intrigued, at the very least, to want to know more about how that job works. These jobs were elevated into the spotlight, and we loved them. And here's the crazy part, too, about these jobs, is that they usually made a ton of money doing it. And so if you are somebody who's really into side hustles, forget about, like, driving Uber for a side hustle, go and worm grunt for a while. Like, you might make some good cash doing that and sell it to all the fishermen friends that you have. But television changed the way that we viewed these jobs. The reality is that most of these jobs, if you walked up to somebody and said, hey, my name is Chris, and I'm a poo pot maker, or I'm a maggot farmer, like, most people would be like, that sounds really disgusting. Like, please don't wear your clothes into my house ever, Okay. Like these would be things that like outside of the television show, these jobs, they were filthy or they were disgusting throughout most of history. uh, People who had these types of jobs uh, would have been shunned. They would have been people that like people viewed as less than intelligent or less than capable of doing all of these jobs. And so they gave them these really dirty and disgusting jobs because nobody wanted to do them. None of the elites in the world were going to do them. None of the people that had means in their life were going to do these jobs. And yet television revolutionized the way that we looked at them and held them up uh, on a pedestal and said, wow, these jobs are really interesting. I don't know if I would want to do it my entire life, but at least they're really, really interesting to look at and wonder. The story that we're going to look at uh, this morning, uh, had Mike Rowe done the dirtiest job show 2,000 years ago, the main characters in our story would have been those who would have gotten a spot on that show without a shadow of a doubt which makes the story that we're gonna talk about today all the more shocking. But before we get to those people and why they are so important, I wanna set the stage for us through history a little bit. So if you wanna open your Bibles to Luke chapter two, that's where our story will be this morning. Uh, But a little bit of history to kind of set the stage for why the story is so important because we can't pick up a story mid-story. It just doesn't make sense. It's like starting a really good movie in the middle. You would be really confused as to how the characters got to that point. And so here's a little bit of a quick history uh, of Israel for you. So there's these kings that star Israel happens in, eight, in 922 BCE, there's been three kings, Saul, David, and then Solomon. And in 922 BC, Israel is split into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Uh, Israel in the north is ruled by a guy named Jeroboam, who was a former general of Solomon, who was exiled to Egypt because Solomon feared that he was gonna kill him. And so when Solomon died, the people in the north brought him back and said, we want him to rule. And then Rehoboam, Solomon's son, ruled the southern part of Judah and they split into two countries. Already some craziness and some division happening there. In 722 BCE, the Assyrians conquer the Northern Kingdom and the Assyrians are some of the most ruthless and vile conquerors that Israel has ever come up against. The things that they did to them were barbaric. They were preposterous. And they were things that involved killing and mutilating and dragging people off into captivity. The prophet Isaiah, this is where we get a lot of his prophetic words from in the the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. On 586 BCE, Babylon, ruled by Nebuchadnezzar II, conquers Judah, the southern country, and destroys the temple and takes many Israelites captive. This is where we get the stories of like the book of Daniel. Uh, where Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the the fiery furnace. Like this is where we get uh, the book of Daniel from. In 538, Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, conquers Babylonia. So Babylon rules for a very short period of time. But he allows the Jewish people to return home. We get the story of Esther, Queen Esther, from this period in time. We also get the story of the prophets of Ezra and Nehemiah, those who are uh, sent back to rebuild the wall so nobody would conquer Israel again, so the Israelites could have a safe uh, home for upbringing for their families and their crops and their animals and and just a place for them to settle again. And then in 322 BCE, the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, conquer Israel, along with all of Persia and Egypt, forming like the largest nation ever in the history of the world. On uh, 167 BCE, the Maccabean Revolt occurs and brings independence to the Jews. Uh, this is where we get the holiday armadillo from. Anybody familiar with friends? When he walks in because he couldn't find like a costume and says, the Maccabees, that's what I think of every single time when I think about the Maccabean Revolt, as he's starting to talk about their holidays. Uh, but the Maccabean revolt occurs and brings independence to the Jews in 167 BCE, and a hundred years later, uh, Rome, led by Pompey the Great, conquers Israel again. And so you can see, leading up to almost where our story starts, the history of Israel is one filled with captivity after captivity after captivity after captivity, with like momentary moments of like freedom, uh, where they're able to live their lives the way that they want to. Although most of it is just rebuilding out of the rubble. So this has been their history all the way up until the point in our story. Our story takes place uh, somewhere between the years of 6 BCE and 4 BCE. So nearly 60 years after Israel was conquered yet again by Rome, and even longer still, the last time that really there were any words from God given through prophets, through angels, through visions or dreams, was about 400 years before this. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard of this called as the 400 years of silence. It's where no word from God was coming. It was just kind of this weird space where the Israelite people existed off of the the former prophets and their traditions and their way of worship, but there were no new words from God coming to them. But finally, in the chapter before what we'll look at, Luke chapter one, they're in captivity Again, and a lot of a lot of Jewish people had thought that God had forsaken them, but finally, a word from the Lord comes in the form of an angel named Gabriel. Uh, It comes to a family living in the town of Nazareth, which you can see on the map here, is kind of in like the northern, central northern part of Israel, up by the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus does a ton of his ministry, and so it's not far away from where he'll do his ministry. Um, but he, Gabriel, the, the, the uh, angel, shows up to two individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth, um, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and says, "Hey, you are going to have a child, and when you have this child, name this child John, because his name will mean that he is going to prepare a path for the Lord. After this, the angel then moves on to Mary, um, who we 've heard is the Virgin Mary, right this woman who uh is, is given a child through the Holy Spirit. She has Gabriel come and tell her that this is going to happen. And she's like, that's weird. That's not how that's supposed to work. And yet she still has this child inside of her. And so she's told that she will have, chi- have a child, which brings us to our story in Luke chapter 2. And so hear these words from the book of Luke, starting in chapter one, or chapter 2, verse 1. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. Today in the town of David, the Savior has been born. Uh, He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given uh, before he was conceived. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So as we mentioned earlier, the Romans are still ruling. They're in like their 60th year or so of ruling uh, when all of a sudden uh, they get this decree, the Israelite people get this decree from Caesar Augustus, the guy who's kind of in charge of all of Rome, this, this big, bad, conquering body who's conquered most of the world around the Mediterranean Sea and then expand that out a little bit. It's a, it's a massive area that he has now conquered. And so Caesar Augustus says, hey, I want to know how many people are in my control. So why would he ask for all of these people to go to one place to be counted? Was it because Caesar Augustus liked numbers and wanted just to know, like, how many people did my kingdom grow by this year? It may have been part of it, right? Like, as people who are in business, like, you want your numbers to go up in, in, in the business world. Uh, in, in the conquering the world world, like, he wanted his numbers to go up as well. But not just to like be able to gloat and say like, well, now we have 60 million people in our control, but it was all about how many people were there that we could then tax, right? The reason that there was a census back in the day was that they knew how many people were in each area and how much money they could expect to have to be brought in. And so Mary and Joseph set off on a trek back to Joseph's hometown. Remember, they're all the way up in Northern uh, Israel up by the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth in the green there. And they have to make their way all the way down to Bethlehem, down just kind of southwest of, or just south of Jerusalem there. Uh, this is about a 90 mile journey or so. And so this is like walking. This is riding on a donkey. This is not like hopping in the Corvette and going for a joy ride for a little while, right? Like this is, this is like, this is roughing it in a lot of ways. And so there's some experts that say, yeah, they probably did this in like four days. And to those experts, I would say you've probably never had a wife who's been pregnant before uh, because trying to walk 90 miles in four days would be awful for so many reasons, right? Like, when are you going to stop, like, to rest? When are you going to eat? When are you going to sleep? When are you going to go to the bathroom? Like, 90 miles in four days on foot is insane. And so those who, like, have had somebody pregnant in their life, they're like, yeah, it probably took more like seven or eight days, uh, for them to travel, right? There's, there was no pressure for them to get there. It's not like the Roman, uh, it's not like they said, hey, you have four days to get all the way down to Bethlehem in order for you to be counted. Like people were traveling from all over the place. The census was a ways off. And so they had plenty of time to get down there, but still 90 miles is a long way to, tr- to, to travel. And so the story goes on that when they get into town, they cannot find a guest room to stay. This may be a new way of hearing this story, uh, for many of you, because many of you probably heard this story told as what? They've had no room in the, in the inn, right? Uh, no room in the inn. The reason translators have now started translating this guest room is because Bethlehem was a city of like a couple hundred people, maybe. It's a very small city just outside of Jerusalem. It's like, take for a second, if you pick like a, a small city outside of Grand Rapids, like Saranac or something, I don't know, Pick a small town, like a couple hundred people. There's not a, not a ton, like people aren't going to Saranac. They're not going to Bethlehem as like a touristy destination. It's not like they're going there to like do business deals there or something. There's no religious purpose for them to really go there. So uh, translators have started to say it's probably not sustainable that an inn would be the business that somebody would own in that day uh, and age. Although we do hear about inns in the ancient world and the story of the Good Samaritan, You hear about the guy that gets beat up on the side of the road. The religious leaders pass by. The Samaritan picks him up, takes him to an inn. It's probably he was around uh, a major city at the time. So places like Jerusalem had inns. Places like Bethlehem did not. So where did they stay? If they didn't stay at an inn, but they were looking for a guest room, where did they most likely stay? Uh, The reality is, is that they probably did still stay in someone's house, right? Like the story, I had this, I've always had this like crazy story in my mind of like when this pregnant woman shows up and they start to explain this story of, you know, like, She's pregnant, but she's a virgin. People like this innkeeper would been like, "That's not true," and like angrily slams the door in their face. And the only place that they can find is like the stable out back because they were just such terrible people that that they couldn't be seen in in their house. Like just this great shame would come over us if we if we housed them. This was a story I told myself uh, from when I was a kid. I don't know why. It's just it's just where it uh, where it came from. Uh, The reality is, though, like people would have gone out of their way to try and house Mary and Joseph. They would have tried to fit them in somewhere. And so where does this stable idea come from, right? You can see on the screen here, uh, there's this guest room on the right-hand side. Uh, This is like a wall in the middle here, separate door for the guest room. Like if anybody had anybody come from out of town, they would have this guest room like set up really well and nice for them. The ancient Near Eastern world prided itself, prided itself, pride they had this pride around being hospitable to those that are coming into their their midst. And so they gave them this whole guest room separate to themselves, the people that got there first. Now remember, Mary is pregnant, and she's trying to make this trek with Joseph, and it's probably not the easiest thing to make. The other side of it is, is that Joseph is older at this point. His family's probably all passed away. And so while they if his family was still alive, if they would have known that they were coming, they may have saved the guest room for them. So Mary and Joseph may have been late getting into Bethlehem and all of the guest rooms were taken already. And so where did they stay? On the left side of this picture, uh, you can see uh, in an ancient Israelite home, the door would lead right into what would be known as the animal room or the stable uh, in the story. So the first thing you walk in is you see this animal room there with all of the animals from the person's farm or field or wherever they would keep them. To the right, you would have stairs that would go up into the family room. It's a one bedroom house at this point. You would have the bigger feeding trough, like upstairs through like the railings for the animals to eat. Uh, You would have a smaller one downstairs for the smaller animals. And so it's most likely that Mary and Joseph were taken in by somebody and said, hey, the only room that we have is in the family room or in the stable. And so they were trying to be as hospitable as they possibly could to this couple that was finding their way to them. This is where the story gets good. Because here's where our main characters come in. After Mary and Joseph are settled, after they have uh, the child, the main story that we want to focus on this morning picks up. And it starts in verse 8, where it says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone all around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This image uh, is incredibly weird. And yet it's incredibly provocative when you understand why. Because remember the conversation we had about the dirty jobs earlier and Mike Rowe and these crazy things that people would do and make money from. Like this, if, if Mike Rowe would have done a talk 2,000 years ago, uh, this job as a shepherd would have showed up on his list. Because for all of human history uh, and all of Israelite history, the job of being a shepherd was seen as one of the lowliest jobs you could possibly do in the ancient world. If you were with us in the Genesis series, we didn't necessarily talk about this passage, uh, but we talked about a a guy named Joseph and his whole craziness with his family. Well, at the end of the story, Joseph uh, figures out a way for his family to come in Uh, To Egypt to live with them. There's a severe famine going on in the world. And and he had already said in front of a whole group of officials that, well, you guys must be spies. You must be here like to spy on us and and, and learn what we're doing and figure out why we, and figure out and exploit our weaknesses, right? And so Joseph wants his family to come in and to be safe. And so what does he tell his family to say when Pharaoh brought them in for an interview? In Genesis chapter 46, uh, here's what the scriptures say about what this looked like. Chapter 46, verse 33. uh, He said, "'When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians.'" The shepherds, they were people who lived on the outside. They were the people that had the worst land. Goshen was not the best land in the world, but they were going to be given uh, that land. They were doing the jobs that were viewed not as a threat to anyone. Joseph knew this in telling his family to say that they were shepherds because nobody would take them seriously and nobody would say that they were worth their time. And this didn't just stop with the Pharaoh and the Israelites in Egypt in the ancient Israelite world, uh, this job would have carried a lot of biases towards the shepherds. While the shepherds did like one of the most important jobs in all of Israel, uh, they were raising the sheep that would be used for the sacrificial system, most likely. And they were trying to raise these sheep that had, these, had no blemishes, no spots at all, because these sheep were to be used as the atonement for the, sac- or for the sins that were preventing people from connecting and being close to God. And yet it was seen as one of the lowliest jobs because of how much travel it would be, how dirty these people got all of the time. The ancient rabbis saw shepherds as unclean and low status. They were not to be messed with or or talked to for fear of making oneself unclean, which was a really big deal. And so the shepherds were afraid of more than just the angels' choirs coming to them at the time. They would have been afraid to interact or go near anyone or go into any city which makes this story so crazy because who comes to them? Only some of the most important and powerful beings in all of human history come to the shepherds. The angels show up in the middle of the night and share this story that a king is to be born, a savior is to be born. The angels are like the most powerful and important people in the universe. Like everybody was hoping to have a moment with an angel if you were a Jewish person because it's like a really crazy story and God has spoken directly to you. Uh, It's like if Jeff Bezos showed up with angel's wings, like think of a really important person. The internet's a wild place, by the way. I literally just searched that on Google because that was the first thing that came to mind and it showed up, Jeff Bezos with angel wings. Uh, But I mean, I'd be a little bit frightened if an angel showed up to me? Because the most important beings in the universe come to deliver news of the most important figure to ever be made and to enter into our earth. And he came to a group of shepherds. I can't imagine the fear and the questions that had to race through their mind because as Kenneth Bailey says in one of the books that he's written about shepherds, he said, from their point of view, if the child was truly a Messiah, the parents would reject the shepherds if they tried to visit them, right? Right? Like this was one of the fears that would have been running through their head. The angels are coming to them. Like angels never come to shepherds. Important people never come to shepherds. And so from their point of view, if they were to go and visit uh, the, the, this Magi or this Messiah, this King, the Savior, if they were to go and visit him, they would surely be rejected because who, who, who hangs out with shepherds? And yet I can't imagine the relief that must've come over them when they heard these words from the angels. Uh, that this will be a sign to you, that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Kenneth Bailey writes that hearing that the babe was lying in a manger reassured them that he was in a humble home and that for maybe the first time in their life, they were gonna get to interact with someone important who had something important for their life. And so these shepherds, they get up, they leave their sheep out in the field And they go and find this child that was born, this child that they, of all people in the universe, were invited to go and see. When they find him, he's just, as they said, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. I have to wonder how powerful of a moment and how shocking of a moment that was for the shepherds who for their entire lives have been kicked and spit on and and had dirt thrown their way and told, hey, don't get too close to me. I don't want to become unclean. And yet the tides have now shifted to now where they're the most important people being invited to go and see the most important person that's ever been created, who would do incredibly remarkable things to save the world once and for all. after time, They get up and they leave. And it says they leave with joy in their hearts because for the first time in their whole lives, they've been seen as equals. They've been seen as loved. And they were seen as worthy to be in the presence of royalty. Kenneth Bailey writes one more thing, that this was their sign, the sign of a lowly shepherd. He adds uh, that these people did their best and it was enough. The shepherds were welcome at the manger And the unclean were judged to be clean, and the outcast became honored guests. I want to end with a story. Um, I was in Israel in uh, 2018. At the time, I had been married for a couple years. I was in seminary. Uh, I had a three-month-old daughter, and so leaving for 10 days was a really hard uh, thing. Uh, To leave my wife, first-time mom, like with a three-month-old at home, Uh, in a different time zone, so I couldn't even really like talk to her regularly throughout the day. I couldn't really see my child, and so I was kind of like split in these two places. And um, for anybody who's been to Israel or you've ever talked to somebody who's been to Israel, there's usually like one story that they always start with. So I want to share with you my story of being in Israel and what my experience was like uh, being there because it was a really profound moment for me. I don't remember what day it was or how far we were into the journey, uh, but we, went, we came to this place uh, on the screen. This is called the Herodium. Uh, it, is, it looks like an anthill, um, but like, you can kind of see how tiny the people are on the top. It's literally like this man-made mountain fortress thing. Like There's a mountain out in the middle of the field, and it's like somebody just cut the top of it off and built a structure down inside of it. The guy who created it, his name was King Herod. You probably heard of this guy uh, before in the scriptures. This place was the pinnacle of power for Herod, the pinnacle of power for Israel at the time. Like this thing was said to be impenetrable. The slopes of this thing are like 35, 40 degrees. Like you couldn't run up this thing if you wanted to. You couldn't conquer this thing. There was one pathway really to get up to the top and it wound back and forth forever up this hill. It was a symbol of the ultimate power and ultimate paranoia that someone had. From the top of there, uh, our guide, uh, Yehuda was his name. Uh, Him and uh, Dr. Greer who were leading the trip with me uh, we were standing up at the top, and they said, if you, if, if you look over to your left, we were looking out this way, look over to your left, uh, he said, you see that kind of like ridge and, and valley off to the side? He said, on the other side of that, he said, is the town of Bethlehem. Um, and it was this very weird moment where I was standing on the top of this like place of ultimate power and saying, wow, this place is now, like, it looks like that. It's an archeolo- archaeological dig site. Um, It had crumbled, it had fallen apart, it had been this place of just lavish, I mean, there's one room that in there, like before they had like TV screens or airlines or the ability to fly, they would paint these like murals on the wall from all over the world and it would be like the exotic room in there where you would have like a Mediterranean coastline or you would have like a jungle, like it was just this beautiful place of just immense royalty and power and wealth and here it sits now, crumbling and they were talking about the story of how like, yes, this has crumbled, this power dynamic, the way the world had always worked has now crumbled. And yet Bethlehem is right on the other side of that hill. And the story of Jesus has continued on for so long. And that for me was an aha moment, but the story gets crazier because as we're making our way back down, we go, we go back out and kind of, you can see where the path starts. Uh, we're like up at the top, like kind of rounding the corner. And there's like this right-hand side where you see, like, these buildings up towards the top where it starts to wind back down. We're standing there, and someone suggests to us, like, we just need to sing a Christmas carol at this point. I don't think it might have been O Holy Night. I'm not exactly sure what it was, um, but it was a story. It was this beautiful moment where, as we're singing this, and this might be the story that everybody shares from the journey uh, when we were there, But as we were singing the story about the birth of Jesus, about just thinking about this power dynamic shift and the crumbling of this empire and Jesus' ministry of peace and love and inclusion coming together, like all of a sudden on the bottom of the hill, at the bottom of the Herodium, we see a teenage boy walking with a herd of sheep uh, out in this field. There's this really crazy, powerful moment uh, that was not lost on me in that space. Just thinking back through that, the first people that Jesus interacted with were shepherds, the people that were the most unclean, the people that the world would have shunned, the people that had so many hard things happening in life, that the shepherds were the first one invited in to the story with them. And the power dynamics and all of it was just this really beautiful moment that will not be lost on me forever. The reason I tell you this story. It's because as you continue on into this Advent season, I know there is going to be so much that pulls you from all different areas of your life. But in this season, take a moment and rest in the joy that those shepherds had to have felt on that first Christmas morning and do as they did. Because like you and I at one point in our lives, like those shepherds who needed some joy and some hope or felt on the outskirts or felt shunned in some way, shape or form, whatever it is that that moment in life, you know the goodness that's come because of knowing Jesus Christ in those moments. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. So someone in your life, like those first shepherds, is feeling the pressure that they're not good enough, that they won't amount to anything, that they can't afford everything that their child wants for Christmas. And because of that, they're a terrible parent. And yet, Jesus didn't come with all the fanfare and pageantry that he could have had. He could have come and he could have been born to someone who was born into royalty and had these amazing elaborate parades and had all these ornate clothes and and been put like, on a baby throne or whatever it is that they did back in the day. They could have done all of these things. He could have come in that way and yet he chose to come in this way and include the shepherds who needed to hear his story the most. And his first guests were the one who needed joy the most in this season. We all know who those people are in our lives. We may even be those people uh, this season. So just know that Jesus came for you and that Jesus came for them. May we be good news to each other in this season the way Jesus was and the way the angels were to those shepherds on that very morning. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for uh, the stories that, that you have so intricately crafted for us. All of the strings that are being attached through these stories as we slow down and notice them, the ways in which you orchestrated Jesus being born in a manger to help the shepherds be at peace. When the angels came, they could give them a sign and and say, no, Jesus didn't just come for the rich and the elite and the powerful, but he came for those who feel down and out, who are going through a hard time, who feel shunned, who maybe just need a little bit of joy in their lives. So God, in those spaces, if that's us, if we need uh, a little extra dose of your joy this season, would you put somebody in our life? Uh, Would you put it into our life? Uh, If we know somebody who needs a little extra uh, ounce of joy this season, would we be good news as the shepherds were uh, leaving and telling everybody about what had happened to them? Would we be good news to the people around us as we anxiously await the birth of your son in this season? So God, we love you. Uh, We'll talk to you soon.
0: For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.